Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Amanda. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop. And today's program is for healthcare professionals, care coordination for older men living with cancer. This is a really important topic in today's world, and we are delighted with all of you being on the call. We know there are many healthcare professionals on the call, and we also know that there may also be some very uh, interesting, interested um, caregivers and people, uh, older men living with cancer and others as well, so that we do understand that there may be many of you on the call who really, really recognize that this is such an important topic. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. And we have over 487 participants on the call, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really are an international group, and really it's a credit to you that you're spending the next hour with us. Now, today's program was supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. I really want to thank them for their support of this particular program. And I have to say it's a topic that we probably will, in talking with all the speakers um, about this program, it's a topic that we probably will be hearing more and more of um, as throughout um, the coming years because it's, it's just such an important issue. Now, we on this call today have truly the multidisciplinary team. And it's um, my uh, pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. And Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She's professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven is going to provide an overview of care coordination for older men living with cancer. She'll also address managing comorbidities in older men living with cancer and follow-up care appointments and adherence. So I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sloven. Thank you, Carolyn, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm very enthusiastic today about our program. This is truly a, dis a multidisciplinary team that Dr. Mesner has compiled for your listening pleasure today, and I have to tell you, it's really a, uh, my honor to be part of this uh, group. So we are, I guess it's to our credit to say that we have people who are getting older and they have cancer, and the good thing is that they are all living a much longer time than they would have 10, 20 years ago. And so I guess what we really are seeing is multiple medical comorbidities that need to be managed in the setting of oncology. So as people live longer despite their cancer, they still have the hypertension, the problems with uh, their blood sugars, uh, problems with their, their musculoskeletal system such that they get tired or achy, and this is what we face as we all get older. Now, integrated care, which is really the subject of our discussion today, is really essential to meet the needs of, I guess, what we would call an aging population. And there has been a concerted effort both at the national and governmental levels to really address that because it needs to be 
really kept in mind that we need care for people who are living longer with long-term conditions, and we also need to enable people who have certain complex needs to be able to have healthy, very fulfilling, and I guess the best word for it is an independent life. So in, in sort of preparing for this this discussion today, there have been, oh, goodness knows how many papers written about this area here. Uh, there have been position papers whereby uh, it's going to be necessary, both at the governmental and national levels, to take care of a lot of the complex needs that older people are uh, or will be experiencing and to really make that a priority for everybody at, at every possible uh, level. A lot of it has to do with trying to implement how to deliver the best, uh, best health care. It has to deal with integrating care with multiple other, not only agencies, but coordinating the care with, uh, with other doctors. Uh, you know, the Department of Health has had an effort on that, and there's really been consensus or opinion papers that really talk about the priority for action and the need to really take seriously the needs of uh, the graying of the population, as we like to say that. So what are these problems? Okay, well, for people who have cancer, irrespective of the type, very often patients are living very comfortable lives and may have blood pressure problems that uh, need uh, management, such that they need to see their doctors very frequently. And among the issues is, number one, how do I get to my doctor? Uh, sometimes people have uh, financial constraints. Sometimes people live at long distances and don't drive. And so coordination of care and having the availability at a very minimal price range to get people transported to and from their appointments is absolutely imperative. What else needs to be done? Well, as a medical oncologist, I can tell you right now that uh, it is imperative to talk to other doctors. And this is something that is more than just a note that you CC off after you've seen your, your patients. I try to make it very clear to my patients who have medical issues other than the oncologic issues uh, which, with which I deal to let me know what their current clinical status is. How's their blood pressure been? And of course, I'm an internist first, an oncologist second as a subspecialty, but I want to know, I'm treating the whole person, so I want to know what's your blood pressure been, what's your medications, are you taking your medications, are you able to afford your medications, and are you having problems with those medications? Are you having side effects? Everybody seems to think that, is the, uh, is that, that the cancer supersedes everything, even though they're living long with it, and they feel that the oncologist is replacing their pulmonologist, in other words, their lung doctor, or they're replacing the needs of their primary care or general internist, and the answer is that is not the case. I have found it to be extremely helpful for these outside doctors to participate in the care, and again, there have been position papers and committees uh, in which I have participated that stress the need for an understanding on the part of the other doctors regarding what we are doing oncologically for the patient, and if the oncologic issue or the cancer itself is stable, then how do we work with the other doctor to ensure that everything is being monitored appropriately and per the other doctor's uh, requisite needs. So 
I always try to pick up a phone and call a doctor and say, look, your, your patient's doing much better. He's having some issues. He's telling it to me, but he's not telling it to you. So blood pressure sometimes ends up being the bane of my existence because people think that I'm their internist. Yes, I can take care of it, but it's better to have it under the auspices of one doctor who can monitor your care. Well, what about simple things like reflux or you know heartburn again it's the same issue here we pick up a phone we talk to the gastroenterologist and what you want to have happen is the gastroenterologist to have a dialogue with the doctor what about medications in general well affordability is is very important having a pharmacy that is reliable and can cater to your needs and can have a relationship with your doctor is really part of this whole medical integration and perhaps one of the biggest issues that we face is the compliance issue. You know, a patient uh, goes home, uh, he or she has been stable from their cancer, but they're just having a hard time taking the medications, or for financial reasons, they may be taking the medications every other day instead of daily. And this is where having the social worker, having nurse case management, having a lot of people involved can facilitate. The one thing I don't want to do is have somebody come in with a blood pressure crisis because they couldn't afford their medications or because they just didn't know how to deal with their medications. What has been very important from my, my standpoint is transparency with the patient. Just if they won't tell you, and some people have a lot of pride and won't say anything to you, is I just very uh, directly, and I, and I hate to use the word, I'm extremely sensitive to everybody's needs, but you have to be direct sometimes and say to that person, what do you need? Why are you not taking your pills? Is it an emotional issue? Is the pill too big for you to swallow? Do you have dentures that may make it difficult to deal with uh, medications or food? All of these things are important because we have dietitians that will be helping. We have psychiatrists who might be helping with the fear of, of certain aspects of your, your daily life. And therefore, it's important to let somebody know what is going on with you. The multidisciplinary care team can involve any number of doctors. It's just not the, the stomach doctor or the lung doctor. It's involving people who can help you live your life. It's from the social worker to the rehab uh, specialist to a psychiatrist or psychologist who might help you as a patient or help you as part of a couple in dealing with your needs or adjustments. It has to do with the uh, incorporation of people. So we are very fortunate to have a wonderful social work team here at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I can tell you that we do, I mean, if there's an issue, they bring it to me so that when I go in, I can more tactfully address the issue and say to a patient, I understand this is bothering you. How can we help you? Sometimes it means a phone call to the patient's family, daughter, wife, who may not even be aware of the issue. Sometimes it means having a family meeting and inviting all the participants in that person's care, all the healthcare professionals and the support staff, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nursing, and the like to help people understand the nature of their disease and how we can get them back home and transition into a normal life. So this is really serving as an introduction to my very distinguished colleagues here who really do this full-time and I think can enhance your understanding of how we need to be able to fulfill the needs of these patients. So back to you, Carolyn. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Slope, for an exquisite introduction to the call, just exquisite and wonderful, and um, we will definitely have questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, and Dr. Palos is Clinical Research Manager, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Palos is both a nurse, social worker, and a doctor of public health, so she kind of has her own team there going on right there we have. And uh, Dr. Palos is going to address the importance of teaching patients and caregivers effective communication with their healthcare team, strategies to work with older men and their caregivers to optimize patient care, support with coordination of follow-up appointments, and tips to assist patients and caregivers navigate the changing healthcare system. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Good afternoon, and thank you, Carolyn, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be invited on this call to discuss the important topic of care coordination for older men with cancer. Dr. Slovin gave a concise introduction to that topic as well as how to manage comorbid conditions that often affect this uh, particular population and the importance of communication to keep up appointments and follow following treatment plans. So I'm going to expand on the importance of communication and coordinating care for men living with cancer and then present some strategies on how to navigate um, the healthcare system. So there are various definitions of older. So first, what I'd like to do is define who I'm going to refer to as older during this call. So I'm going to go with the definition of any man age 65 and over. So those of you 64 and 3 quarters years of age, don't worry, you don't fall into those groups. And as um, you often have heard, there's um, the 65 to 74, that's the young old, 74 to 84 is the old, and the oldest old are considered those between 85 and over. So those are just one type of, of definitions that are out, out there. Effective communication is an essential tool that can be used by patients, their caregivers, the families, and their health care providers to enhance care coordination. This type of collective communication is critical from the moment one is diagnosed with cancer and then throughout the trajectory of the cancer experience. And why is that? Well, a diagnosis of cancer initially plunges one into a world of uncertainty, distress, and other similar emotions. These emotions are also intensified with the onslaught of complex medical information and the need for life-altering medical decisions often made within limited time boundaries. This all sounds quite overwhelming, but the good news is that effective communication throughout the cancer experience can promote healing, reduce stress, and sometimes even encourage lifestyle changes. Communication between these key groups seems logical and simple, yet for healthcare providers, effective communication is a clinical skill that becomes better with practice, experience, and time. And it is a similar experience for patients, caregivers, and other family members. So it's clear that we all vary in our ability to be an effective communicator. In addition, communication can be verbal or nonverbal, and it can be affected by cultural background, language preferences, personalities, and even sex or gender, whichever word you prefer. So communication can be acquired when a patient, caregiver, or healthcare provider has the motivation, the knowledge, and the skills to collectively build what I'm going to call patient-centered communication. So in the next few moments, I'm going to discuss some basic elements that can help build that effective patient-centered communication talk a little bit about how differences among uh, genders can cause differences in communication style, and then again talk a little bit about how to navigate the healthcare system. 
So there's some urban myths in our society about men and their communication preferences. We've all heard how men prefer nonverbal communication over verbal communication. We all have heard how men do not share or show their feelings, and even that men must be strong, stoic, and silent. And there's no doubt that men are socialized from birth to follow these rules of masculinity. These generalizations about men cut across generations, but there's a sense that older men, that is men of the greatest uh, generation, or what they call the GI generation, the silent generation, and even the baby boomer generation may fall into these generalization groups more often than younger men. But rather than make assumptions, it's more helpful to build a relationship with our patients and families to find out what is their preferred uh, method for communication, or what is the preferred communication style, much like what is one's language preference. In addition, we must remember communication can be complicated with age, which is especially meaningful in our society as we witness the dramatic increase in our population of those 65 and over. And there are also cultural or religious preferences, where once again, there are clear boundaries between male and female roles. Another factor that influences communication with older male patients is associated just with normal aging, such as hearing loss, declining memory, slower processing of information, feelings of loss of control, retirement, or even separation from family or friends. So in our aging, multi-generational, and multi-global world, how can we build and maintain effective communication that will contribute to high-quality care and effective care coordination? So I'm going to start with some tips, and these tips may sound too simple or logical, but given our busy schedules and limited time for visits, we often forget how simple details can influence patients' adherence to follow-up visits, medication regimens, and trust. And these um, details, when we don't pay attention to them, can also family, uh, influence the family members in terms of the satisfaction, trust, and respect that they may have, and so all of those factors will influence, again, effective communication. So patients and caregivers, here are a few strategies that you may wish to use. Simply tell your story. As a nurse working in the pain clinic, I often found a disconnect in how a patient rated their pain level on a form versus in a conversation. As I increased my communication skill set, I found if I asked the patient to tell me their story about a regular day in their life, I received a wealth of information, much more than what was shared in the questionnaire. And that information was generally more accurately. So I began my visits with patients by asking them to tell me their story. Those who are older often appreciate being asked to share their story. And as a healthcare provider, we can help keep the story focused and within a certain time frame with uh, certain cues and, and questions and uh, you know, moving them back into the topic. And I did a little bit of a review of the literature because I was curious about this, and I found a lot of information about uh, caring for men diagnosed with prostate cancer. But there was a huge gap in the literature about caring or communicating with men diagnosed with head and neck cancers, colorectal cancers, or other types of cancers, and also on communicating particularly with older men just diagnosed with, a, with dif again, different types of cancer. Some studies, though, that I did find in the prostate cancer area suggested that um, men diagnosed with prostate cancer were usually accompanied to visits by a spouse, partner, or another family member, like a daughter or a son. So if a male patient doesn't wish to tell the story, ask the family member to give their interpretation of their loved one's story. More often than not, the male patient will begin to share, either to clarify, add, or correct information. The literature did show that men's preferences were to get to the point during the visit, keep the visits brief, and provide actual tasks or activities for them to participate in. 
Men, were, the literature said, were often reluctant to speak openly about their emotions in front of their spouses. So time alone at the end of a visit would be one way to give them private time to talk with a healthcare professional about these concerns. Studies also show that men in general would like information about treatments, side effects, and services they can access. They were also concerned about changes in their functional status, such as fatigue, pain, urinary, or sexual function. Caregivers and families often wanted information or services that addressed um, caregiver burden, feelings of isolation, as well as information, um, practical assistance, and referrals. So for patients and caregivers and family members, I encourage you to ask questions, state preferences and opinions, and express concerns and feelings. For example, you can even begin by telling your healthcare provider about the challenges you face in dealing with your disease and maybe some of the other conditions that you may have, such as hypertension or diabetes or any of the other conditions that come along with just being a normal person in our society. If there are still unanswered concerns or questions, ask to speak to another member of the team who can address those issues, such as a social worker, a mental health professional, a dietitian, or a sexual health counselor. For healthcare professionals, again, and for caregivers and family, family members, when communicating with older men, remember these basic tips, and I'm going to go through them rather quickly. But first, allow extra time in the clinic visit with older patients. Avoid distraction. Sit and speak face-to-face. -face. Speak clearly, slowly, and loudly. Use short, simple words and sentences. Stick to one topic at a time. Simplify and write down instructions. Use visual aids such as pictures, models, or graphs. Summarize important points throughout the visit and give the patient time to ask questions and provide feedback. And most important, listen, listen, listen. Now here are some tips to help facilitate appointments among um, different caregivers. Again, you might want to schedule um, older patients earlier in the day. Try to remember that we, it's important to greet our patients and not always by the first name right away. We can ask again what their preference is and how to be addressed. Seat them in a comfortable, quiet area. Provide good lighting. The material needs to be in big print. And use easy-to-read signs or give instructions or directions. Be ready to physically escort the patient from room to room to uh, minimize the risk of falls or getting lost. Keep patients updated on delays or reasons for extended periods of waiting. Help folks to stay focused and relaxed. And say goodbye and thank them for their visits. Again, quite simple and logical, but we often forget. And these are not just applicable to our older patients, but probably to most patients. Now, there is evidence that men with cancer usually require long-term supportive care throughout their care services. Regrettably, these types of services are not always readily available or accessible to those diagnosed with cancer. With men living longer and more being diagnosed with different types of cancer and other types of comorbid conditions, innovative services will be needed. And the healthcare provider will have a significant role in identifying, understanding, and tailoring a patient's services to their specific needs. Healthcare care providers can also help patients and caregivers access the appropriate services and navigate, navigate the system. Now, there's two factors that can influence care coordination. One is the healthcare provider's own perceptions can also interpret the way or influence the way they interpret men's words or actions. And the healthcare's expertise or knowledge of supportive care will impact how men's unmet needs are addressed. So remember, your healthcare team can provide information about treatments, medications, side effects, and disease pro progression. They can help meet your information needs, um, help access services for 
emotional support, give information or education or referrals about practical issues such as in-home nursing, care, community resources, or even about sensitive information such as what type of pads to use for urinary incontinence, and when necessary, make referrals to appropriate services such as physical therapy to deal with fatigue or weakness, mental health professionals to address emotional feelings, and social workers to address financial issues. And several of these issues will be addressed by my colleagues on this, on this call. So in closing, I have a message for patients and caregivers. Each of you have a significant responsibility to be an active participant in this cancer journey, no matter how challenging that may seem. Another message for all on this call is that integrated care is a basic tenet of providing optimal care coordination, regardless of age or sex. In summary, we must all agree collective and effective communication amongst the patient, their caregiver, family, and healthcare team is the first step in achieving optimal patient-centered care. Thank you for this time, and this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palin. That was really, Dr. Palin, that was really wonderful. Just absolutely magnificent and lots of wonderful information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A and lots to remember and take away, so thank you. And our next um, speaker is, uh, uh, is uh, Diana Bairden, and Diana Bairden is a supervisor of clinical nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bairden is going to address nutrition and hydration recommendations and concerns that people may have, and it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Diana Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, during treatment, the role of the dietitian is to work with patients and family, along with the healthcare team, to formulate a plan of care um, best for the patient to address issues as they relate to nutrition, um, a patient's ability to eat or maintain an optimal nutritional status, and assist with identifying malnutrition. Uh, the healthcare team is the center of it all. You know, we work together, we communicate together. So, in always encouraging um, patients. You know, if you have a need, we have a team here to help you. And that's what I find most helpful when um, I'm caring for patients um, through the continuum of care is um, as a healthcare team, we work together and we recognize each other's strengths and um, lean on that professional to really help be the resource for a patient. Um, the types of symptoms or side effects that um, I think are most helpful in identifying um, to know to reach out to a dietitian if a patient's experiencing any of the following, such as, you know, nausea and vomiting, changes in taste, um, mouth sores, changes in their bowel function, maybe going from diarrhea to constipation, sensitivity to temperature, um, changes in their appetite, um, if they're finding they're more, um, uh, you know, they're not satisfied, they're eating more and they're concerned about that or if they're just not eating enough. Unintentional weight changes, either weight gain or weight loss, or possibly issues with chewing or swallowing. All of these um, definitely can impact a patient's a response to treatment and treatment outcomes. You know, if, if we're not eating and we're not fueling the body, then we're not giving it what it needs to be um, successful during the treatment course. So when a patient's faced with challenges that impact their nutritional status, it can really have a domino effect. One of the big misconceptions I hear a lot, and I hear it from patients and, and others, is that, um, oh, that's okay, you know, I'm not eating that well, but I have extra weight to lose, you know, I've been want, needing to lose 20 pounds, and this is really, you know, I'm just losing this 20 pounds that I've needed to lose for a while. 
And what we don't always communicate with patients is that even if you are overweight, okay, you can still be malnourished. And that's um, something as a healthcare professional we know. And so if you are losing weight and they make a referral to a dietitian, it's not that we want you to necessarily gain a bunch of weight back, but we want to start working with you or the patient to formulate a plan to slow that weight loss, potentially gradually lose the weight, um, or maybe even maintain the weight. You know, we, we just, everyone's an individual, so working on that plan together um, is what needs to be done. The biggest concern when we have a significant amount of weight loss quickly is oftentimes we lose muscle. And as we age, one of the challenges we already face is we lose muscle already. So as we age, we lose a percent of our muscle mass. And muscle mass is, is something that um, gives us the endurance to do the things we enjoy, gives us the strength to lift, pull, um, carry things, move things, work in the yard, um, get up and do daily living activities, clean the house, take a shower. So as we um, lose weight quickly and we lose that muscle mass, you may feel more fatigued. Um, you, you may actually see some physical changes in your body to, you know, where you just don't have that lean muscle mass that you did at one time. And so there might be some um, self-esteem issues you know, physically with these physical changes. But um, the, the concern is that the weight loss very quickly doesn't, isn't optimal. So we want to really work on what's going on, how can we address these challenges the patients are facing to halt this change. Um, this sounds really basic, but you know, the amount of energy it takes to go to the grocery store or even put together what you want to cook, go to the grocery store, come home, prepare the meal, and then clean up after the meal can really be overwhelming for patients who are challenged. And um, a lot of times, uh, there are folks who in the family who are able to help family members or a caregivers available. But like we, you know, you, you all have heard earlier in the in the conference, this isn't always accessible. Like financially, there might be challenges. Um, geographically, there might be challenges. You might not be as close to family um, to where they're accessible. And so um, these are things we consider when we when we meet with patients. Is you know how are you accomplishing your day to day life needs, um, self care. Um, those sorts of things. So um, the, the concern is when our nutritional status declines, um, not only do we lose this muscle mass, which is so important, but other things can happen. You know, our response to treatment can um, be less optimal. There may be even a delay in treatment. You know, they may say, well, we're going to put off giving you treatment for a couple weeks. We want, you know, we need to get your energy back or your nutritional status needs to be improved. Slow, slow wound healing. And then, again, fatigue. People just feel tired all the time. Their quality of life is compromised. And all of this can really have an, an impact on the individual. So, um, you know, what, what are we really wanting to address with, with patients going through care? Maintaining a healthy weight during and after cancer is a goal. It may not be during the um, health, excuse me, during the treatment process that we say, okay, let's really start um, trying to change things up and get you to lose a certain amount of weight to be ideal because of these other challenges that we've discussed um, 
you may be experiencing. And so a lot of times we want you to maintain where you're at. After you've gone through treatment, then we can talk about kind of that long-term plan. And um, maintaining a healthy weight is part of that picture. So not only will it potentially, can potentially help reduce your risk of developing another cancer, but it may also help reduce your risk of developing another comorbidity. And as we age, like it was mentioned earlier in the conference, that a lot of times we do add on some of those other comorbidities as we age. And so our, our picture becomes a little bit more, um, you know, interactive and full of, of these different parts that we need to consider when we're, when we're putting together a healthcare plan. So um, another, you know, patients a lot of times are saying, you know, I want to start losing weight. This is a goal of mine. I'm going to, you know, I just need to push away from the table. And um, I let patients know it's not just about weight loss. The number's a part of the puzzle, but it's about understanding what's appropriate for the patient to be eating. And um, this is where coming to your dietitian, working with your healthcare team is important. Everybody's needs are individual, and at different stages of your care, your needs will change. And so as you're going through keeping in touch with your healthcare team and discussing um, needs as they come up so that we can work to resolve them quickly or help address them quickly is important. But um, a lot of times, you know, we, like was mentioned earlier, there's not just one thing in the picture. You know, we, we add a few things onto the basket. And so if you're diabetic, if you have some challenges with renal function or something like that, it's going to change your picture from maybe what somebody else's picture looks like. So talking with your dietitian about what's appropriate for you to eat, what's appropriate for you to try, um, is part of, of being successful. Now, hydration was also on my topic list today. And hydration, it seems so basic. You know, I, gosh, I, of course I'm drinking. You know, I'm drinking fluid. I drink with my meals. Well, as we age, our desire for thirst decreases. And we aren't as active and potentially um, not on a schedule the same way. You know, um, if, you're, if you're, you know, on a regular routine where you get up, you have breakfast, you know, you're drinking, you're eating, you go and you sit and have lunch, and maybe you're meeting with a bunch of people and everyone's doing that, it just becomes more of a routine. But when you're at home sometimes, if you're recovering, if you're not feeling well, your routine changes, and that's based on how you feel. It may depend on how, um, you know, your treatment days go at the hospital, if you have a lot of appointments or whatever. And so staying hydrated is something you need to be aware of. And patients um, a lot of times do forget this, you know, carrying so many things throughout the day around. I know here um, at MD Henderson, patients have bags of things. I mean, they know they're going to be here for several hours, and they just have their lunch packed and snacks packed. And so it's a lot to remember when you're coming for an appointment. But drinking throughout the day is a good way to, to, to just stay hydrated. I tell patients, carry a bottle with you. You can mark on it each time you complete a bottle. That way you know you don't have to carry five bottles with you. You can carry one bottle and just know that you've filled it up this many times, that you've drank this much water. Um, hydration is um, very important because of the effects of dehydration and the, the consequences of that. Um, a lot of times when patients are going through treatment, you know, they're having diarrhea, they're having nausea and vomiting, um, they're poor appetite, they're just not getting enough in, maybe they have mouth sores, something that's really, really challenging for them to um, 
to take in fluid. And so the dietitian can definitely work with finding appropriate um, suggestions for the patient as well as working with the healthcare team if there's particular rinses or things they can use to help um, set off um, or address some of those side effects they're experiencing. But if they are dehydrating and they need electrolyte repla replacement, the patient needs to also be aware of some oral rehydration solutions um, that are available over the counter, such as Pedialyte. Um, Pedialyte's great. I refer patients to Pedialyte often just because of the composition of Pedialyte, which is a lot more appropriate for those who have the GI losses. Um, but, you know, if it's them drinking throughout the day and they want to sip on Gatorade, that's fine too. You know, those are all really good options. But um, just making sure patients um, are cognizant. I know whenever we do our nutrition evaluation, we do a physical assessment. And part of the physical assessment is um, uh, checking skin turgor, um, checking to see how patients' hydration status is. You know, we look at their vitals if, that, if that's available. We talk about weight changes. We talk about what they've been eating, and we do a diet recall. So we're trying to gather this information. Having um, the health care provider with the patient is helpful on any any part of the spectrum of the age spectrum that you're at. You know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, 25 or 35 or 45, 75, having a second set of ears around and eyes around to just say, oh, no, 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 you really didn't do that. This is what you ended up doing. Or don't you remember you had this also? So that can be really useful when the patients come. Um, like I said, it's long days for appointments, and the patients are tired already. They're, they're um, going through this treatment. So anything a healthcare um, provider can can add to the team, excuse me, um, yeah, a care provider can add to the, with the team during um, consults and interventions um, can really make a difference. A lot of times uh, people don't think they're a big deal and and they really are, so it's important to have that. We do give a lot of um, written material um, for patients to go home with and appropriate font size um, is something to consider reading level a lot of times, um, the appropriate language. We use translators here, and um, especially when somebody's maybe their hearing is compromised or even their vision's compromised, you know, some of their basic faculties, having um, a translator there it, working in their own language is really helpful. So we use that a lot as a resource here with patients. Um, I think it just kind of closing, coming to a close here. Um, the most important thing to remember is that, again, every team member has their strengths, and we need to learn and understand what each team member can bring to providing the best patient care. So reaching out to all of those who are here for patients um, will just result in a better outcome. So I'm going to hand this back over to you, Carolyn. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Graydon. That was really excellent, and it's such an important topic um, and one that I think uh, challenges many, and so you really gave some excellent tips and ideas here, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Deborah Wolf. Deborah Wolf is an attorney. She's supervising attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAG, and uh, uh, Ms. Wolf is going to address a number of issues, um, educating patients and caregivers about working with insurance providers and appealing denials, tips to appeal private insurance and federal and state-funded insurance, and the Affordable Care Act. She has kind of a lot to cover, and I am going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, colleague uh, Deborah Wolf. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference with Cancer Care. 
I often make presentations to patients and consumers about their insurance rights and responsibilities. And one of the first things I always advise them to do when there is a problem with their insurance is to contact their medical team for guidance. And quite often the problem gets quickly resolved. So it's especially rewarding to be a part of this conversation in this audience as I know we share the common goal of assisting our patients or in my case clients in the best possible ways. So I've been asked to speak about educating patients and caregivers about their insurance the Affordable Care Act, and tips to appeal insurance denials. In discussing health coverage as well as appeals, it's important to first note that there are different types of insurance plans, and these include group policies from employment and union benefits, as well as policies now available through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. I'll also discuss Medicare and Medicaid. The insurance laws of every state may also require certain minimum benefits, so patients' rights may vary depending on where they live. So this will be very general advice relating to all, since I know we come from so many different areas. But it's also important to understand the laws of the state in which you live. So older adults still in the workforce will generally be covered by private insurance through their employer. As a start, the most important advice I always give to clients with private insurance is to make sure they obtain and read a copy of their policy or at the very least a summary description of the policy. This will outline the benefits, any coverage limits, and the appeals process which we'll discuss in a bit. The insurance company can also be a good resource to call if there are questions about what is or is not covered. But even with the Affordable Care Act, insurance policies are still allowed to have certain coverage limits, so we do need to understand all of the benefits and limitations. Now, I'm sure everyone's heard of some of the good changes with the Affordable Care Act. A health insurance marketplace now, marketplace now operates in every state, and in the marketplace you can compare different plan benefits, see if you're entitled to government-paid subsidies to lower the cost, and determine if you may be eligible for free coverage under Medicaid. You can also access information at the federal site, which is www.healthcare.gov. Now, many states have navigators, and these are people who are trained to assist consumers in applying for and reviewing their plan options. These plans are offered with no pre-existing condition exclusions. There are, however, a small number of policies that were in existence before 2010, and they're grandfathered, meaning they don't have to comply with the Affordable Care Act. So it's important to read all the insurance documentation, as tedious as I know it can be. Now, all plans must now cover a list of essential health benefits, and there's no monetary caps on coverage. The marketplace offers four levels of coverage, but none pay 100% of cost, so it's important to review the choices to determine the best plan for the patient. Even with the highest plan, a 10% copayment can be costly for a person in treatment for cancer. And again, even with these changes, all policies can still limit certain coverages. This might include the number of physical therapy visits or home nursing visits allowed per year. But any limits or exclusions must be set forth in the policy or the description. Plans through the healthcare marketplace 
are HMOs and many limit out-of-state benefits. Now, some states have implemented laws that require some plans to allow out-of-state benefits. Others do not, and this has been a patient concern I often see for someone who wants to treat with a certain specialist outside of their state. Now, if the policy requires pre-authorization, and most do for major medical procedures in radiology, I advise the patient to always check with their insurance company to confirm that the procedure is approved, as I do have clients with claims denied for lack of pre-authorization. With an HMO, make sure all doctors are in network, and if the patient's having surgery, make sure all doctors involved, such as an anesthesiologist, are in network. This is also an area in which it's important to understand any state laws. For example, in New York, where I practice, we have a law that prohibits balanced billing from out-of-network providers in certain circumstances. So knowledge of state law is important. Moving to Medicare and Medicaid, these are both government-sponsored health insurance, and both have been approved, improved with the Affordable Care Act. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. Medicare is available to most people age 65 or older who are citizens or permanent residents, and if under age 65, a person who's been receiving Social Security disability benefits for a period of 24 months. Medicare is not available to others with some very limited exceptions. Medicare coverage consists of a number of parts. Part A, which provides free hospital coverage. Part B, medical insurance, which requires a monthly premium. Part D, the prescription drug insurance plans, which are pro provided through private insurance companies that have contracts with the government. And there's also Part C, which allows private health insurance companies, such as HMOs, to provide Medicare benefits. And these Medicare private health plans are sometimes known as Medicare Advantage plans. Medicare recipients are entitled to the same essential health benefits. However, Medicare generally does not cover the entire cost of medical treatment, often only up to 80%, but the remaining 20% can be costly, especially with the cost of cancer treatment. Many people do purchase additional Medicare GAAP policies to supplement Medicare, and I do want to point out that these policies are exempt from the Affordable Care Act requirements, and some do have pre-existing condition exclusions. So again, make sure that our patients read these plans and ask questions so that they understand all the benefits. Now for people who are lower income, Medicaid can serve as the supplemental policy to Medicare, and I'll talk about Medicaid in a minute. Now for men who are still working who become Medicare eligible, they may have the option of deferring their Part B or Part D coverage without penalty if they have a work policy or a spouse who's working. Once someone retires, retires, even with a work retirement policy, Medicare is then primary and enrollment is required. But these rules are complicated, so I always advise patients to speak with an expert one good resource is Medicare.gov, and there's also a nonprofit organization, the Medicare Right Center, who are very helpful in navigating the complexities of Medicare. They have a very in interactive website, MedicareRights.org, that can answer many of the complex Medicare questions that come up.
So it's important to note that enrollment in both marketplace plans and Medicare take place during an open enrollment period, and if a patient misses these deadlines, they may have to wait until the following year. There are exceptions, such as when someone is losing other coverage. So again, make sure to have them speak to someone knowledgeable in this area. Moving now to Medicaid, Medicaid insurance is a federal state partnership with shared authority and financing. Certain eligibility rules are established mainly by each state and vary depending on where you live. So again, it's important to know your state Medicaid requirements and regulations. With the Affordable Care Act, in about one half the states, Medicaid has been expanded to increase coverage to include more lower income people who have not always had access to Medicaid. And as I mentioned earlier, one application in the marketplace will determine eligibility for Medicaid or a health plan, as well as any subsidies for the premiums. Now, Medicaid recipients are also entitled to the same benchmark benefit package that meets the minimum essential health benefits available in the health insurance exchanges. Medicaid is free, and it's desirable for many older people with cancer because it offers often needed home nursing or AIDS or nursing home coverage if needed. The goal of the Affordable Care Act is to enhance the quality of care for all Americans, regardless of whether they have private insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid. But even with these new protections, claims are sometimes denied. The insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefit called an EOB for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the amount paid by the insurer, the patient's required contribution, which can be a copay or percentage, and if not paying, the reasons for the denial. Under the Affordable Care Act, we have a right to request a full copy of our insurance file prior to filing an appeal to see how they reached their decision, including notes made by the case handler and any reports by the insurance company doctor who reviewed the claim. In counseling your patients, it's so important to stress the necessity of checking mail and reading the EOBs, as tedious it may be as it may be with everything else that they're contending with. I encourage my clients who aren't feeling well to have a caregiver or family member assist them in checking and reading mail on a regular basis. When a claim is denied, the first step should be to call the insurance company right away to discuss. There's many reasons a claim may be denied, and often the insurance company just needs more, needs more documentation from the doctor's office to approve. If the matter can't be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, then you have the right to file an appeal directly to the insurance company. Once the first appeal is submitted through the provide, often the first appeal is submitted through the provider's office. So as I mentioned earlier, I always advise the client to also speak to their medical team. I'm always surprised and impressed by the number of insurance issues that are quickly resolved with intervention from the doctor's office. If a patient has access to legal help, often the collaboration between the medical team attorney and attorney works quickly to resolve any insurance issues. The written appeal should document the reasons they disagree with the insurance company and always include medical records and a letter from the treating doctor. 
If the insurance company denies the appeal, a person will then have the right to request an external review, which gives us the right to file an appeal to an outside, objective, and independent panel, no matter where you live or what type of health insurance you have. This means that independent medical professionals with no financial stake in the claim make the decision. And if the external reviewer overturns the insurance company's denial, the insurer must give you the payments or services you requested in your claim. Another important Affordable Care Act protection is expanded consumer assistance. This requires that states designate an independent office of health insurance consumer assistance that responds to inquiries and complaints by consumers and help file complaints and appeals. And there should be a contact number either on your state market white marketplace website or through healthcare.gov. Finally, it's very important to make sure to understand the deadlines to file an appeal as these are very strict. The rules vary depending on the type of policy, but the deadline will always be set forth in the policy as well as the explanation of benefit. The good news is that around half of all denied claims that are appealed to the top are finally allowed coverage, and the percentage for external reviews is even higher. And I've seen in some states as high as 70%. So if a patient draws on all the resources available and has adequate medical support for their claim, they stand a good chance of having the claim paid. So to summarize, it's important to make sure our patients read their health care policy so that they understand their coverage, what's required of them, how to appeal, and very important, any deadlines that are imposed. Appeal deadlines are strict, so make sure to stress the need to read the explanation of benefits from the insurance company and respond on time. It's so difficult to keep on top of insurance matters with, matters with everything else going on, but with an understanding of what their rights and responsibilities are, as well as help from the medical, medical team and groups such as cancer care, they will be able to navigate any insurance issues or questions that come up. I also want to end by briefly mentioning that there is a National Cancer Legal Service Network, and this is a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal help to people with cancer. You can check to see what help may be available to patients in your state, and that website is nclsn.org. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Deborah. That was really excellent. Ms. Um, Wolf, that was outstanding, really. And, um, so much information and really important um, in navigating um, one's um, health care and, and benefits. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she is our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And I have to say this is our fastest growing program at Cancer Care, the request for online services. And um, Ms. Evelyn is going to address increasing patient access to resources to enhance their care, entitlement and copay assistance programs, identifying community advocacy and medical resources to improve quality of life, and psychosocial support to coordinate care. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Evelyn. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be included in this teleconference today. Uh, my name is Caroline Edland, and, and I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care. And we've been speaking about care coordination, which is a major concern for people living with cancer and, in many cases, other health issues, too. 
Cancer is an expensive illness, and financial concerns are understandable, as well as a significant source of stress. However, encouraging your patients to have an open dialogue about the cost of cancer can help them become better informed about their financial and entitlement options and help reduce the financial impact of their illness. When it comes to managing medical expenses, it pays to be informed and upfront. Uh, so number one, encourage your patients to understand their insurance policies so they're not blindsided by charges. Encourage them to look through their policies and read carefully to understand their benefits and contact the health insurance provider with questions. Um, asking themselves what portion of the medical expenses uh, they're responsible for paying is important. Uh, are all of their doctors part of their insurance plan? Uh, their insurance provider may also be able to assign them a case manager to help address these issues, so they should always inquire about that. If they are not covered under health insurance, encourage them to speak to the treatment center or hospital financial services department or their local department of health to find out what benefits they are eligible for and to apply. Uh, number two, encourage your patients to keep a diary of their expenses and any communication regarding their finances. This will enable them to catch any billing errors and also identify areas of greatest need. Number three, encourage your patients to talk to you, their healthcare team, as soon as possible about their financial situation. You may not always ask your patients about their insurance coverage or their ability to pay out-of-pocket expenses. And additionally, many patients may not feel comfortable volunteering this kind of information without some prompting and encouragement from you. It's important to help them resolve financial issues that not only increase stress, but also may limit access to needed treatments. You can help uh, remind them that, uh, that you want to work together with them to devise ways of reducing cost without compromising treatment. Also encourage your patients to connect with the patient financial services department, a social worker, or patient advocate. Remind them that the treatment center may offer a payment plan, may be able to reduce the charges, may have special funding they can apply for. Number four, and this is very important, please encourage your patients not to ignore bills because once they go to collections, they are harder to resolve. This may sound like a tall order for them, especially when they are not feeling well, but there are organizations that can help them or at least help direct them to resources that can help. Um, as Wolf talked about navigating the Affordable Care Act, and I would like to reiterate that healthcare.gov is the official governmental website managed by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, presenting all health reform details in a user-friendly manner. Consumers can also call 1-800-318-2596. That's 1-800-318-2596 to get personal assistance and help in languages other than English. In all states, there are people and organizations in the community who can meet with patients in person and help them apply, pick a plan, enroll, and answer questions. I would also like to mention some other organizations that can help. The American Cancer Society has a fantastic program called the Health Insurance Assistance Services. They help educate patients and their loved ones about the ACA and health insurance options available to them. They have also published booklets, which you can now download from their website, which is www.cancer.org, or call their National Cancer Information Center at 1-800-227-2345. There is also the Patient Advocate Foundation. 
Their mission is to provide effective mediation and arbitration services to patients to remove obstacles to health care, including medical debt crises, insurance access issues, and employment issues for patients with chronic, debilitating, and life-threatening illnesses. Patient Advocate Foundation case managers serve as active liaisons between the patient and their insurer, employer, and or creditors to resolve insurance, job retention, and or debt crisis matters as they relate to their diagnosis. Um, so you can learn more information about them at www.patientadvocate.org. There is also the Cancer Legal Resource Center, which is a joint program with Disability Rights Legal Center and Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. And they provide information and edu education about cancer-related legal issues to the public through their national telephone assistance line. They can also assist with a variety of legal issues, including insurance concerns and appeals, employment rights and leave time, access to health care and government benefits, and estate planning and they can be reached at 1-866-999-3752. I would also like to speak briefly about organizations that can help with medication and copayment expenses. These organizations are available to help offset the cost of care, which as we've discussed can cause significant worry and stress. This organization, Cancer Care, offers financial assistance to help with transportation, home care, and child care expenses. In some cases, there is also funding available for pain and anti-nausea medication, oral hormonal medication, lymphedema supplies, and durable medical equipment. To learn more, please call Cancer Care's Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Another resource is the Cancer Care Copayment Assistance Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that helps people afford insurance copayments for chemotherapy cancer medications. And they can be reached at 1-866-552-6729. There are many programs out there and organizations like Cancer Care, the American Cancer Society, Patient Advocate Foundation, and Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition can assist patients in finding these programs. Many of these organizations maintain a state-by-state -state resource database, so you can find both local and national resources. At Cancer Care, patients and healthcare providers can call our Hope Line, where oncology social workers can help you find resources and also provide some financial assistance. Uh, finally, I would also like to briefly mention the CFAC, or Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition, as it is a great resource. A group of organizations, including Cancer Care, came together to create a user-friendly online database of resources. The site allows you to enter in a zip code and cancer diagnosis, and it will pull up both local and national financial assistance resources. That website is www.cancerfac.org. I'd now like to shift gears a little and talk about another very important resource for your patients, which is support. Creating a support network is an extremely important aspect of their care, and Cancer Care can be a part of that network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer care, 
by cancer, excuse me. Cancer care programs include individual counseling, which is face-to-face -face in the New York City area and over the telephone nationally, support groups, which we can also provide face-to-face -face in the New York City area and over the telephone nationally and online, nationally and internationally, education programs, and practical help on how to navigate the healthcare system, and some limited financial assistance, as well as chemotherapy copay assistance. All our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends. We are also trained to help cancer patients and their families tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, the physical changes, social adjustment, and the psychological impact and care. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. As you know, cancer affects the whole person and the entire family. Encouraging your patients and their loved ones to ask for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. They do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group is a way to connect with others who are going through a similar situation or have similar issues. And individual counseling provides a space that is just yours to voice any concerns. These connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. Feeling well emotionally can help them better deal with the diagnosis and the treatment. If you or anyone you work with is interested in any of cancer care services, please call our Hope Line again at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive, and you can find a lot of information, not only on support, but on all of our programs as well. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Edlin. That was very comprehensive and really excellent. I know there will be lots of questions for you during the Q&A and lots of wonderful resources. And I just want to let everybody know that, that some of you got announcements about the resources, um, and also we will be sending, when you get your evaluation form, our follow-up with all of you after the call, you'll be getting all the announcements also, that all the, um, all the resources that everyone has given throughout the call um, as listed as resources, so additional resources, so not to worry. You'll be getting all those things in the, in the, either via email or by snail mail, depending on how you registered. Okay, well, thank you. And um, now we do have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I want to ask Amanda if she'd explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Amanda? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Claudia B. Your line is open. Claudia, do you have a question you want to ask? Do you want to take yourself off speaker, perhaps? Or? Thank you. Again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. 
So we have a question from one of our online participants, and the question is, my dad is elderly and scheduled to start treatment for cancer. We are concerned about his ability to tolerate treatment side effects given his age. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Slovin if you would address that question to start with, and then we'll have our other speakers um, add to it if they wish. Uh, Dr. Yeah, Slovin? That's, that, thank you, Carolyn. It's an excellent question, and I would be the first one to tell you that uh, patients do very well with chemotherapy and overall cancer treatments. In the old days, we used to think if somebody was older, they were more frail and therefore could not tolerate it, but the reality is that they do very, very well. Sometimes the doses have to be adjusted. We might need to give more fluid, but frankly, uh, these people really surprise many of us in that sometimes they actually feel better when the treatment has begun as opposed to not having any treatment at all. So clearly, your, your father is under the care of somebody who will not recommend a therapy unless that person thought it would be appropriate for him or her. So I, I would go definitely and go forward with the treatment. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Palos, do you want to add anything to that? Certainly. Um, it's, it, it, I agree with Dr. Slovin in all her comments about how people used to think about in the past about treatment for older patients. This would be a perfect opportunity for you as uh, the family member and other family members to get together before you get to the oncologist's office and put some questions together, put some of the concerns that your father may also have about um, taking the treatment, and that way you'll have those questions when, and you'll be prepared when you're meeting with the oncologist. And remember, if you don't get to ask all the questions to, directly to the oncologist, there's usually um, a mid-level provider, an advanced nurse practitioner, a physician assistant that can also help answer some of those questions. And then all the other resources that we have here, they'll be more general because they won't know all the details of your um, father's diagnosis, et cetera, but there, are, there is always a place for you to get answers to questions. So just go in there prepared, um, and I think that will help a lot. Um, excellent. Thank you. And there's another question from one of our online participants um, about um, what are resources I can give to caregivers caring for older men with cancer? Um, so um, I wonder if, uh, Carolyn, if you could kind of address this in a general way. I know we've gone through a lot of resources, but just the concept of the support network or how can you help caregivers um, caring for older men with cancer? Absolutely. I, I do think one important piece is to just reiterate for caregivers that their needs are important too. I think for many caregivers, um, of course, so much of the focus is on their loved one who is diagnosed, and often their own needs and interests can get lost in the fray. And um, as, a, as a healthcare provider working with that family to remind the caregivers that they too um, deserve you know, to get those needs met and to get connected with resources is indeed important. Um, the questioner did, didn't mention what types of resources, but I would um, certainly encourage them to call Cancer Care's Hopeline for one thing. Um, again, all of the calls here are answered by social workers, and we can learn a little bit more about the family situation and that caregiver's needs and try to brainstorm some ideas from, from there. And um, we offer, as I said, you know, support groups, individual counseling, and can link them up with some other um, external services, too, if they're interested. Excellent. And another question that actually um, our speakers have actually identified as a big issue is, um, the issue of um, finding a resource back home, um, how do you find that team? So you may be going to one cancer center for your care, but then you may live far away. And so I'm going to ask if Dr. Palos, if you could address that question of really just helping people to what do they do when they're being treated at one place, but they're actually 
their their home is so far away and they're going back home and they're going to need all sorts of support mechanisms to take care of them. That's an excellent question. And I just want to remind folks that uh, the diagnosis may be cancer, but that doesn't mean that you can't seek out resources from other organizations um, and support groups in your, your neighborhood or in your local community. For example, some of you may have what they call United Way. The United Way also has an information referral service um, that could give you more specific information to your geographic uh, region. If you're working with our older um, adults, then you can also go with the Area um, Agency on Aging. They will also have resources and information for you. Um, so you can think outside of the pocket of just cancer and look for other resources if it's something that you want to get for, for caregivers, for one thing, and then for help um, with the patient and some of the needs they may have. As Dr. Slovin mentioned in, in her discussion, remember this is not just a, a, a cancer diagnosis, but it can be accompanied with all these other conditions. And many of the agencies that address uh, hypertension and diabetes and, and, of course, cancer will also have information and resources available to patients. Um, so I would, I would really encourage people to look at their community see what's available there, and to think outside the box in the paradigm of just cancer and look at some of the other diseases that are there for resources. That's excellent. And Ms. Sheridan, do you want to add anything in terms of just resources for also uh, dietitians in terms of people who may need that kind of counseling when they go back home? Yeah, um, what we try and do is, um, is determine, you know, obviously where they're heading back to, and then we encourage them to talk to their oncologist, their local oncologist. A lot of times, even if they're in a small community, there is a dietitian in a local hospital that that physician has an affiliation with. And so um, we absolutely can communicate with that local dietitian if um, that dietitian is working to coordinate the care, um, to share information or, or whatever we need to help that patient carry the care through. We also um, are here for the patient when they come back, but we, we do encourage them to have somebody locally since that physician will be managing um, their care day to day. So yeah, local community um, hospitals a lot of times will have a dietitian, so we, we really encourage them to talk with their doctor. Carolyn, I just would like to weigh in. This is uh, Susan Slovin speaking. I think one of our biggest weaknesses as uh, practitioners is that we often do not anticipate. I think we just see the patient in the here and now and don't extrapolate to the distances. It's not that we don't want to, it's just that it doesn't come across. And I think preemptively what we will have to learn and are continuing to learn is how to anticipate needs and change our offices such that when we see the possibility, the potential for there being a transportation problem or having another doctor need to be involved, that we be very preemptive and, and deal with it well before the patient even has to think of it. Our problem is very often that uh, patients want, literally, they want me over near them, and unfortunately it doesn't work. And what I try very hard to do, and you should be very vocal, ladies and gentlemen, with your physician, and that is really just sit down and say, look, this is hard. We, we want to be with you. This is what we'd like our care to be. Can you recommend a colleague who can practice or has the same type of uh, interest that you do? And I would say that probably 95% of the time, we will be able to refer you to a colleague that we know well who will communicate with us 
and therefore allow good continuity of care because they will your your loved one will get the appropriate care in the setting of two doctors who will be collaborating and will be able to uh, communicate. So, I, for example. I just got a uh, a call in from a colleague of mine who treats a mutual patient in uh, northern Florida. And any time there's a change, he immediately alerts me, and uh, we talk about what to do, and then I will communicate with the patient and say, yes, I agree with this treatment plan. So I think all of this can be done to everyone's satisfaction as long as there is communication. Excellent, excellent point, and the communication is really critical, and as you can see on the call today, we've had a lot of communication amongst disciplines, and I'm going to ask as we conclude the program today, but we haven't concluded yet, I'm going to ask each of our uh, expert faculty here, speakers, to actually um, to give you um, one takeaway point that they'd like you to take away with you from the call today. I'm going to start with Dr. Slovin. And, uh, if I had to give you one point of advice, that would be please do not be intimidated by your doctor. Uh, there are some patients who will rather brazenly, brazenly say to me that they don't like the doctor, the doctor wasn't touchy-feely or cuddly, and everybody is different. I often say that it is to the patient's benefit that they have a talented doctor, someone who will do well for them. On the other hand, if the doctor's behavior is that of, of being a poor communicator, certainly by all means change doctors. But if the doctor is an excellent communicator but does not give you the love that you think you need, I really don't think that that's a reason to change doctors. So, you know, just voice your opinion and say, you know, doc, uh, I, I'm just just very nervous when I meet with you. Can can we talk? And you'd be amazed how a doctor, if he or she cares enough, will try to address adjust and adjust themselves in such a way that you are made more comfortable. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Palos, a takeaway from today's call for Yes, um, just want to remind folks that effective communication is a tool that all of us can use, whether you're a patient, a caregiver, a family member, or a healthcare provider. And it just takes time uh, to acquire the skill set, and we just have to take that first step to, to move toward that effective communication so that way we can get good care coordination. Excellent. And Ms. Uh, Ms. Darden? Uh, my takeaway would be know your healthcare team and know um, know your resources within that team. Understand their roles and strengths, and um, get their information. Reach out to them to um, utilize that to help um, address your needs as, as they come up and rather sooner than later. Um, and, and just know who you have right in front of you. Excellent. Thank you. And. Um, uh, Ms. Wolf, our next um, just takeaway. Sure, and my takeaway is brief and really just that the best way to avoid any insurance issues is to make sure that patients are educated on their coverage and their rights and their responsibilities and to let them know they can call upon the many resources that are out there and available to assist them with the, these complex issues. I think as everybody's heard from the preventers today, there are so many organizations out there that are willing to help with these, whether they're the simple insurance questions or the more complicated questions, and to make sure that our patients have access to them. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Ms. Edlund, um, a takeaway? 
So I guess I would say for um, patients and for family members, um, just to remember that you're not alone in this. And as others have said, your healthcare team is available, and there are so many resources out there that are able to help you as well. So please do reach out. Well, thank you. And I want to thank our presenters today. You've been extraordinary, really, just an amazing team, of, a multidisciplinary team of what you would, what, would want to have in your healthcare setting. And I also remind all of you that, um, and your questions, we appreciate those who've asked questions today. And many of you have questions that I will tell you what to do with because of the call will soon be ending and we'll tell you how to get your questions answered if you didn't get them answered. Um, and I think the concept of not being alone is an important one, both for the people living with cancer and their other health problems, as well as for men living with cancer and the healthcare problems, as well as for the healthcare team, that the healthcare team is not alone. Often uh, people do feel siloed, they don't feel like they're part of the team, but you are really part of the team. And today you got to hear all the different specialties, and there are so many more. We could have actually had this call go on all day because there's so many subspecialties within that team that can be so helpful to you. Um, so we uh, want to remind all of you that there are many services out there to help people and um, that, um, indeed, um, all of us are not alone. We actually are as good as our, our ability to bring other people in to help us when we have questions and concerns. Um, I do want to remind all of you that if you didn't get to ask a question, if you have a medically focused question, a question really needs to be answered by a medical personnel, I would suggest you call the National Cancer Institute at one 800 422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. If, on the other hand, you have a question about the emotional, social, practical, or financial issues related to coping with cancer, I would say, um, or and, and related issues, that you would call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE. Again, that's 1-800-813-HOPE. Most importantly, as we conclude today, please note there are resources for you, lots of them. We will be sending the resources that were mentioned during the call to all of you, either electronically, um, by email, or uh, in a, in, by, by snail mail and, and paper format, depending on how you registered. But most importantly, remember that there are lots of resources for you and that um, we are an, there are important health conduit for you from your healthcare team. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a wonderful day.